So that's that's the plot. I mean, we we took a good we took a good swing through. In fact, we we almost like a. Uh, quite familiar with uh, the whole story going through. I think what we'll do now is just sort of turn to some general sort of discussion areas about the book, themes, ideas, styles, and things like that. Uh, I did quite a run through of that, so I'll sort of hand the reins a bit to you. Anything that you wanted to kind of kick off the discussion with as a sort of a broad, um, a broad sort of discussion to follow that? Anything that sort of took your fancy that you wanted to pick up? Um, I really want to get into the stylistic stuff because I think Should we do I have that? Should we do that? Then? Yeah. That. Should we start with that? Oh yeah, yeah. So stylistic in terms of uh, in terms of like writing style, and I'll I'll probably bring this up a lot now that we're into more like sort of the mm-hmm. opinionated, but not quite fully, not full blown mm-hmm. opinion. But you might be able to tell my opinion through some of the comments I make, but in any case, uh, yeah, so uh, her writing style, broadly speaking, um, uh, got me a little confused at, at certain points, uh, and a lot of this I sort of, among other things perhaps, but the thing that stuck out the most was this uh, ambiguous he that was often used, well, not often, it was just used the entire time, that I don't think and maybe a smarter person would have caught on sooner, but it took me probably th- maybe a quarter to two thirds of the book, not two thirds, quarter to a half, somewhere between there, um, to kind of figure out what was really going on here. <laughs> so what, I, what I'm referring to is how they would often, so you have like, let's say Cromwell and Wolsey in a room and, Walsey would be doing something. Walsey picked up a pen and uh, started, you know, taking notes in a journal. And then the next time he he started to think to himself, "Oh, how can I get in the in the king's good graces?" And you're like, "Wait, what? That doesn't seem to kind of flow with what Walsey was just doing." And then it's like, and then he walked over to Walsey. It's like, "Wait, Walsey, what?" Oh, he means Cromwell in this case. And it's, uh, that messed me up so often. And it, it, I really had to, um, to get used to that. Uh, so that was sort of a, um, a mental slash, uh, reading type of strain. I feel like I had, uh, you know, wrestling with the book, um, Perhaps that's a, I mean, it's obviously a very unique style of hers or one component of, of, of her unique writing, at least for this book. This is the only Hillary book I've read. I don't know if she, this is something she did specifically for this book. Um, not sure why. <clears throat> um, this, at first I thought it was just me, but then as time went on, I was like, wait, no, this is like a, a, a selected, uh, writing style, and uh, then then I was asking myself, <laughs> not sure why. It's very creative. I would I would definitely give it that. It's a creative type of writing style, but in my mind, it sort of broke some rules, I guess, <laughs> uh, as I was reading. So, um, that's one thing about the style. I think that sort of one seemingly minor thing. Uh, 
made a lot of like a certain parts of the story really uh, muddled to me. Not like the entire thing as a whole, but like certain scenes really like a scene would happen. I would read through it and then I'd finish and I would think to myself, wait a bit. I know there was like four people in that room. Uh, two of them were named Thomas. Uh, one of them was Cranmer. Uh, the other person was just some guy sitting over there in the corner. And I was like, what happened in that room just now? <laughs> so I'm sure um, there are literary folk who are, I'm not a professional. Liter- I'm not a literati, I would say. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm sure there's something very beautiful to that style to somebody who can really, truly appreciate um all kinds of writing styles, but for me, that uh, that um, that style was uh, it was interesting. I'm not giving my opinion yet, but it was interesting. Um, do, you, do, you, do you want me to give a bit of a do you want to give me a thing of what I I think about why the use of he is here? I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear so, why. So <laughs> I, I I had a bit of a thought about this. I think it is it's one of the most puzzling choices. There's a couple of things to say. Firstly, I mm-hmm. I also listened to the audiobook when I read this. So the he became a lot less of a problem when listening because the speaker, by his tone of voice, kind of made it quite obvious who the he was. Plus, I think that I, I think I was aware of the he issue. I didn't quite realise what it was going to be before I read it, but I did see it. By the way, they use the word he a lot, so beware. It can be confusing because the contemporary use of, as you sort of alluded to, is you specifically name a person and then subsequent references are he, with the context of you've you've already just mentioned just mentioned that person. I suppose you have the flip side in this, as you say, if as they as they joke in the book, half the world is called or well, half the country is called Thomas. Yeah, then just that. saying Thomas is not very helpful either. Uh, and so there's a stiltedness if you were then just to say Cromwell says this, Cranmer says that, Wolsey says that. I think the idea, here's the, here's the sort of interpretation, I think there's a few things in this. One, which I think we could come on to when we talk about perhaps third person present style. The book is, uh, although it's not like first person Cromwell, it's a very like tight third person. So it's very close. The reader is very, very close to Cromwell beyond a normal third person. Mm. And I think the use of a he is supposed to better simulate as much as you can possibly be, being a third person, the kind of innermost thoughts that someone would have in private. There's something that soars also just that it just because Cromwell is so fundamentally important to the narrative it should kind of, it's almost just saying, look, this guy's so central, he's so important, it goes without saying that he is the main character of the book. When when we talk about Harry Potter and we say he, we think it's Harry Potter. We don't need to spell out necessarily the fact that it's Harry Potter. Similarly, this whole book is, is centred around Cromwell's experience and therefore we know that he's very prominent and using he sort of underscores that. I think there is something where Mantel likes to create ambiguity. So I don't think that's an accident. And I think that all readers of this book will find some ambiguity in some of the dialogue. But particularly, as you say, is there's four, there could be four men talking and saying he can be very confusing. The basic rubric in this book is assume 
if, if certainly if Cromwell's in the conversation, 95% likelihood he means Cromwell. <laughs> there are some cases and where 5% he is not. <laughs> yeah, 5% is not, but you, you, that's fine. That You still wouldn't really lose much of the book. Yeah. But 95% of the chance it will be Cromwell. There are some scenes where Cromwell's not really the centre of that bit of the story. And so sometimes he is used, for example, about Thomas More's uh, execution. The he refers to Thomas More in that situation. You can kind of pick up that on the context, but in most of the situations, almost all, he means Cromwell. So I think as you realise that, that can help you. But I do think that it, it, she's basically challenging you as a reader to be like, you need to be paying attention here. This is not a passive, this is not a passive read. It is supposed to be uh, slightly challenging at parts. And yep. I think there's another thing, which is like where, and again, this is where this third person present tense style is going to come in, which I think we can sort of draw into that chat. Hilary Mantel creates this atmosphere with this book. Again, what we said was one of the big challenges of how you write this book is how do you make this book relevant for people that live such a long time away? One of the things that she tries to do in this is like, you know what? I can't tell people the history more than they already know the history because they know the history. What I can do is to try to create something that can bring this to life. And she's chosen this, I think, I don't know, but I'm assuming she's chosen this as a kind of style that can be immersive, atmospheric, and a bit dreamlike, I think, in its kind of way. And I think the use of he contributes to that idea. And so that, that's, that's what, I think that's my reading. That's my reading. Mm. I suppose the, the flip side is, you take the he out, does the book, does the book lose something from it? It's a bit hard to say because I, mean, I can't really imagine it. I think the book loses more if you get rid of the third person present tense. I think that I is that. stylistically more important for its atmosphere probably than him. Yeah. But I don't think that the he was unimportant. Right. But I, I did agree that Artistic there is something freedom. challenging and ambiguous about it. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think uh, especially what you said about sort of uh, feeling like you're standing right there on the on Thomas Cromwell's shoulder, or even to the uh, whatever, to the greatest extent possible, maybe you are Thomas Cromwell in a way, not completely, I guess, if you're saying he, but but yeah, that that closeness uh, to the character. Um, also, the I feel like uh, I can also appreciate this use of the word he. I just wish uh, I knew about it beforehand. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, I, I do think that's in, in a symbolic way, kind of really interesting. Like we're using this he you can always assume he is Thomas Cromwell, and that is like a s- symbolic way of saying this book is really you know we have all these characters. Some are closer to the to the center, closer to Cromwell. Some are you know maybe further out in orbit. But don't forget that this book is about Thomas Cromwell. So, you know, and maybe in some way now I'm really speculating, maybe it's something, some way to sort of take, take away importance from the king himself, because typically, you know, if we're talking about the, the kingdom of England back, back then, usually it's centered around the king, but no, no, Hillary wants to be very super focused on this guy. Complete, complete speculation just kind of percolated in my head. But. That's not a bad thought. That's not a bad thought at all. I mean, actually, that's, again, that's the whole, 
in a way, one of the points of the book, isn't it? Again, isn't it? It's like the Henry's the main character. He's often the main character we learn about in the history books. Let's turn it away and subverting that typical choice of the he is a really interesting thing. I suppose if you're going to be the feminist point of view on this, would be the feminist which thing would say he underscores the fact that these main characters are all virtually male, despite the fact, of course, women mm. women in the book are clearly quite important, but they are they play a kind of um, a foil role, I suppose would be the kind of way to say it. Anne Boleyn is quite empowered, but she's operating within the kind of limits constrained by her by men, and she's going to ultimately do... She basically is the sort of the frail kind of uh, fickles and whims of the king. Um, really, aside from perhaps uh, Cromwell's wife, and perhaps even her, is not the, the best uh, probably time for, for any of them. <laughs> So there's perhaps that if you were the feminist critique would probably be something along that of the use of, of he. But I do think I do think there is the the point that I think that you raise um uh subverting the kind of use of the king, I think is an interesting one. I heard her in a rap song. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, the third person present, I think, is a, a is a is an interesting thing. I'd never let's say I'd never seen the book that did it. But I think that to do it for the whole book uh, certainly of this genre, I can't remember a book doing it. It's often a style that you're more likely to see in like a mystery book or like a like a thriller. Something that is kind of like, you know, and then I'm I'm running, I'm running, I can hear the burglar crashing in through the door. Quite like that, very action-y. Mm. Very like an interesting choice compared to the kind of typical detached versions of the past tends to be typically seen. I thought it was a fascinating choice. It doesn't come without its problems. I think the biggest, my opinion is, the biggest problem of using the present tense throughout is it's quite, it can be quite exhausting because it's, there is something about that style that although it could be exciting, it can be too exciting. <laughs> and there could be something about it where it always feels a bit, it's a bit too, it can feel a bit immediate. And you do get some reprieve from that, from the kind of, the sort of chit-chat that happens that, Stand, follows a more standard book, I guess, because even in a past tense kind of written book, a conversation is a conversation and the tone of that doesn't change, really. Because you're just reporting what was said, so that's still similar to a normal book. But all the kind of rest of it, it's particularly that first, even again, we talked about that first chapter, you begin with stuff like, you know, fellow, fell day silent, he has fallen, not full length on the cobbles of the yard, his head turned sideways, his, uh, his eyes are turned towards the ground, as if someone might arrive to help him out, one blow properly placed could kill him now, blood from the gash on his head, which was his father's first effort, is trickling down his face, add to this, his left eye is blinded, but if he squints sideways with his right eye, he can see the stitching of his father's boot is unravelling, the twine has sprung clear of the leather, and a hard knot in it has caught his eyebrow and opens up another cut. She got very, um, very, uh, very immediate uh, yeah. uh, style. I, I think feels like it's happening really, uh, right in front of you. Yes, yes. Which is really interesting. Again, this thing about the idea of the challenge of how do you make something five hundred years relevant? The answer is you put them there. You, yeah. put, you get the audience and be like, you need to feel like you were there in the room. You need to feel like this was happening. You need to feel relevant because history books are written in the past tense. And there's something about this book, because obviously because it's not a story that is new, 
So you, the, the mystery can't come in the plot. It has to come through the, the atmospheric qualities that the author can portray. And mm-hmm. so how do you do that? You can play with a lot of things, but one of the reasons you can also play with style, form, and content. Yeah. I wonder how much, how uh, noticeable that would, be, that would be, though, if you had no idea this is a historical fiction and you had never heard of any of the people who were in this book. Would that... And you took away the he thing. <laughs> that might help a little bit if you're new to the content. <laughs> but uh, let's say you just picked this up and maybe you've uh, lived in some, I don't know. There's probably not a lot of people in uh, many countries who don't know who these people are. And they don't know the genre of the book. They just pick it up in the library and they start reading it as if it is sort of what you said, like some sort of graphic novel or something like that. Would that stand out as much in that case? I think you. I think it still. I think it still stands out because it's unusual, even if it's alone. I think the problem, if you come into this book with zero knowledge, I think that Hilary Mantel assumes you know some stuff here. She gives you some background, some of the Tyndale stuff, the Lutheran, you know, the translation of the Bible, everything like that. There is some background there, but it's not much. And I think there's a lot in there that's like a bit like, you know, oh, you know, you know who this person is, you know. And so I'm not going to, I don't have to spell this out for yeah. you because I expect my reader to sort of pick it up. Some of the challenges can be through, um, it's not, it's not that expositional, um, well, it's not exposition at all, really. But the, you do get some exposition through the kind of like court courtier chat, you know, the chat between like the Norfolks and all those kind of people, uh, the Seymours and all those kind of people piping up. And there's a lot of kind of background chat about people. And there are some plot points that can be revealed through that conversation, but it's not always that obvious unless you kind of knew sometimes what to look for or you knew who the key players were probably in the time. So I think there's, there are, there is, there is a danger to it, but I do think, I do think you I think that would be your biggest problem if you came in. You would just sort of have no sense. The other thing stylistically, I think as well, that you would miss would be the king doesn't actually really appear that much in the book. <laughs> or as much as you might think. So if you look at a history book, he's on every single sentence. <laughs> he's, he's sort of, how many pages is the king in this book? Gotta be quite few. Like directly, like isn't he actually there in the room? He's talking. It's not that much. It's got to be like less than less than twenty or thirty. Yeah, not not until like Cromwell and him actually meet for the first time, and then gradually they grow a relationship. But even their conversations, I don't think, don't last yeah. like a whole chapter. <laughs> no, it's quite. Yeah, you might get a couple of pages, and then he obviously is ushered out because the king's time. Oh, the king's time is quite uh, valuable. It's a busy man. Yeah, so, but you'd lose that because there's a sense of like where you'd expect him to be kind of calling the shots very actively. But he, you learn a lot about his desires through the kind of courtier chat, which is, of course, actually how you would have heard about it if you were around at the time, right? Because you wouldn't always be speaking to Henry. Henry's woken up and he's feeling like that. The way it would cascade, it would be like his closest advisors. They would trickle out. They would trickle out. There'd be people hearing it through the kind of dark corridors and stuff like that. 
So I do think there's something about that that's really interesting. But of course, that if you didn't know any of that, you had zero context. You wouldn't quite get that. And she'd be kind of like, who's this king guy? Because he's like never here. <laughs> <laughs> Must not be an important king. <laughs> In this British dialect, the king means something else, like a servant or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or my brother who thinks he knows a lot and everybody ignores him. <laughs> okay. Well, that was, uh, unless there was any other major, I think I think those are really the major stylistic components. Uh, we can also... Always toss in some more if they come to mind. Yeah. Uh, we could look into more in depth about uh, Cromwell, but I, at the same time, I also feel like we really, throughout just like our sort of tangents, sort of covered a lot of uh, what we thought. Um, I, I think like his rags, the riches story, for example, is a, a significant component. To this and uh, the ways he can be very sympathetic, at least the way he's portrayed, um, how much of a family man he is, or seem to be in the picture, in the, I can say picture, in the book. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know, is there any other major uh, things about Cromwell specifically, you think? No, I think I think the main point here is that uh, you come into the book thinking Cromwell is like really Machiavellian character. He's kind of like, and unfortunately, he also has the name of another Cromwell, who is Oliver Cromwell, who is also quite uh, Machiavellian and uh, uh, a big big figure in the English Civil War and overturns King Charles. So it's quite an interesting surname, of course, as well, of, of someone who comes later down in history. So it's a quite a cursed, <laughs> well, cursed depends <laughs> on what your name, your perspective is. Um, but uh, certainly this is a much more sympathetic account of Cromwell that you're likely to read in a textbook, partly because it brings to life some of the dynamics in the context of what he was working in. It helps because you're seeing him all the time. You see how he integrates. You see his loyalties. You see his loyalty to Wolsey. And even though he could just cast him aside, he tries to still help him out. And actually, to be fair to Cromwell, his... He's got his own issues with Catholicism that doesn't make doesn't therefore mean that his change to support the break from Rome is entirely opportunistic. There are his general kind of religious and sort of sort of metaphysical uh, challenges that sort of come with uh, the religion as it was prior to the Reformation. So that's not entirely expedient either. But he goes about that in his own way. So I think there's something about it that you come away thinking, you know what, a bit more to him. I've read some forum discussions and some female readers and they were like, they were like, oh my God, I've got a crush on Thomas Cromwell or something like that. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm not sure I would go that far, but obviously he's, no, he's not, my, he's not, I'm not, not the right audience for that. He's quite like a, again, there's something a bit dark and broody about him probably in a sort of modern reader's perspective. He said the Edward Cullen, perhaps, of the kind of twilight. <laughs> kind of <laughs> something about him in that kind of semi-anti-hero, dare I say, kind of role. Um, whether I call it... I don't I'm sure he was just as handsome, too. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. But <laughs> he would have been quite a nerdy bloke, probably, in uh, some, uh, uh, some ways. But, um, you know, I think there was a portrayal in there that probably is different than the one that you come in um, thinking. Not to say that the bits of Machiavellianism aren't in the book, because they are, but I do think that you, you probably leave it with a bit more of a rounded perspective. 
Uh, it gives you at least a bit more sympathy with him. Yeah, I think for me, just coming in from an American who probably had you know, who's had some sort of cursory interest in British history, also, but never like a deep dive into Cromwell by any means, and not knowing like what the British sort of sentiment, if there even is one. I mean, do you could you ask the person down the street, what do you think about Thomas Cromwell? Is he good? Bad? What do you think? Uh, he came out for me more of a sympathetic character, but then you know I always like to kind of look at you know summaries and thoughts uh, after I finish the book, and it seemed like uh, there's some uh, most people don't wouldn't typically um, depict him as sympathetic. Maybe more like you said, Machiavellian, or certainly in a negative light. Yeah. I suppose it depends on your view about um, the Reformation <laughs> and about about. Good. There's Good something. There was something. Dare I say about this? Uh, not to get too political, but dare I say a bit? It's a bit like proto, or sort of pre-Brexit-ish about this kind of um, the break from Rome, the break from Europe, and the kind of freedoms or the perceived freedoms it will give you. There is something, some, there's probably something, and then the kind of, again, in this book, there's the kind of awkwardness of the kind of, we don't like Rome, but now we've got, we haven't got Rome, perhaps uh, not really steady with that either, and we're sort of taking some time to kind of figure that out. There's, I don't know, there's maybe some, there's, there's some parallel in there, uh, maybe to make a really kind of out there, <laughs> out there yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't the author's intention because this book was written in yeah, 2009. Sort of coming, right? Yeah, sorry, coming. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but she might be psychic. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but other than that, nothing else to say about Thomas Cromwell particularly. All right. Well, you pick the next. Um. All right. Um, let's do. I want to do this comparisons piece about comparing this to either other things we've read, uh, either as part of the Transatlantic Book Club, part of things we've read or seen ourselves, or at least we know of. Historical fictions doesn't have to be historical fiction; can be other things as well. When we're looking at the books that we've read. I mean, again, I said War and Peace is the other historical fiction that we've read. Obviously, very hard to compare books to War and Peace because does, like... does the Mao case uh, count? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit more more on the fiction and less of the his- history. <laughs> Not sure what it was, but it... <laughs> yeah. it was a book. It had pages yeah, we could say that. Yeah, it was a book. It was <laughs> it a title and an there. author. Yeah. yeah, there was some text on there. I don't think there was an editor. There wasn't an editor, but there was some text. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Um, so, so it's people, better than that if we yeah, actually yeah. want to draw a comparison. This, yeah, this was better than, yeah, than that. Case. that, that, that. <laughs> as, as like a historical fiction, of course, so we've got War and Peace as the other historical fiction that we've had. And then you also brought up Cleopatra, which was a... Um, was it a historical fiction? War and Peace. I do or, feel like she's... Oh, uh, no, uh, Cleopatra. Uh, wasn't that a sort of biography? Well, kind of historical biography, I guess, in some way. Yeah. I asked that question not just to you, but to myself, because now I'm thinking back. I know she sort of took, she wanted to, she is a real critic of Petrarch, who yeah. I guess was the most famous historian about Cleopatra or ancient Egypt or this and that. Mm. And um, she wanted to sort of rewrite 
maybe not rewrite the history of Cleopatra, but write it a story of Cleopatra in a different light. But still, I would say being historically historically accurate. I think the difference is like she would put like her own like Cleopatra did this with the uh, oh man who was the guy she was the guy swam <laughs> the Greek guy <laughs> Caesar Caesar or one of the Caesars well Julius Caesar and you've got also Mark Antony as well I think it was Mark Mark Antony's yeah <laughs> the guy she's famous for uh, the Greek guy she's famous for. I don't yeah, know. Uh, Zendler, Roman. Roman. Yeah. yeah. One of those guys. Well, it's both, isn't it? Because she, she had, you had them both on the go. One after the that's other. Probably why, that's why, probably yeah. why I'm getting confused. Because yeah. I believe in monogamy. <laughs> 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 anyway, in any case, uh, you know, she might, you know, uh, talk about these historical events, but then she would on the side, like, have her commentaries, like, this is actually what. Cleopatra wasn't like uh, being manipulated. She was, in fact, a manipulator. So it's kind of just putting her kind of spit on the history. So, in short, that's like why I'm like asking myself: Is this a like a could you call this a nonfiction history, or is it a historical nonfiction or historical fiction? Sorry. Or is it just like a biography or, or just somebody writing a blog and somebody prints it out and put it between two covers? <laughs> so this is, this is, I think this is firmly in the historical fiction end. And I would put the Cleopatra one in just a nonfiction history book. I think yeah, this, I would, is, would, this is more similar to War and Peace than it is uh, to Cleopatra. Right. I hope I need, I'm definitely. I definitely know that Hilary Mantel's book is. Yeah. 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 But yeah, with yeah, Cleopatra, yeah. I think there's a little bit of. I think it's. I, my assumption was it's history, but when I think about like she kind of had her own little spin on it, but okay, yeah, I think I overall still, still history. I see what you mean. I'd almost put that in the kind of like journalistic nonfiction. She's a journalist, isn't she? Old. Um, can't remember Steph. Uh, Steph something was it? Who wrote that book? Ape. No. Steph. Stacy Schiff. Sorry, Stacy Schiff. Yeah. Schiff. Okay. Yeah. She. She wrote that. I think she. Um. She's a journalist. I think wasn't she as well? Um. Uh, outside of that book, I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not fully fully well versed in her repertoire, but I think I think yeah. it was. Uh, uh, I think journalistic background. So okay. um, I think that sort of. Uh, Perhaps comes through a little bit in that, but again, it was an interesting sort of take on um, on that book. I guess the similarity is going to be the opinion. But, well, firstly, they're both his, uh, they're both female writers writing about their subjects in a subject area that is typically dominated by male writers as well. The difference, of course, being that St- uh, Cleopatra is the as a female subject and uh, Cromwell uh, is male, clearly. So there is some interesting in that. It's interesting that she is a female writer with this book. I do have to say, in the context of it being a very sort of book of kind of like, like uh, let's say, uh, men in dark corners having conversations, and like women as kind of like political pawns in a way. There is an interesting. I always find it very interesting when women tackle this uh, this subject. 
Um, and interesting just to see the way that she brings some things out about, again, the thoughts and feelings of, of, uh, of Cromwell, the general experiences and whether, uh, whether she's able to bring that out perhaps better than, than other writers might have done. I do think there's an interesting, uh, story to be said. But nonetheless, I think there's just, there's a similarity is that, that there, she's clearly, she comes to a view, I should say that's, that's probably not the right word. She follows the historical record pretty closely in this book. So there's nothing in this that is historically like wrong, like inaccurate. Whether the right. conversations happened in that exact way, I don't think is that important because she basically takes the historical record and then fills in the gaps a bit like a kind of like, you know, as a data scientist, if you don't have all the data, sometimes you can make a decision about whether you impute data based on enough evidence from surrounding similar records. And effectively, I think that's kind of how I view it. Like she does this, she does a bit of data imputation here and she goes like, it doesn't change the fundamental record, but it's a bit like we know what we can know from various records about what Henry's tone of voice was like based on uh, collab- uh, bringing together different sources about either things that he had written, his written documents, some uh, written documents of people that spoken to him, for example, legends that had got passed down. And you can coalesce them into creating, use all these different sources to now, now you have to write Henry VIII's voice using all the different sources. Because clearly she didn't have, actually have a conversation with Henry VIII. <laughs> She's got to create his voice. And she has to do that by piecing together these different sources. So I think that's the approach that she uses. Um, rather than necessarily such a journalistic tone that Stacey Schiff would use with Cleopatra, the only similarity would be if you view this as the similarity, and I don't think it's entirely accurate to kind of say this, but we'll say it anyway, that her thesis is Cromwell is kind of misunderstood. Because I don't actually think that is the thesis, by the way. Because actually the trilogy goes on to show you that, shows you Cromwell's downfall. This book just happens to be the kind of positive story for Cromwell because he's like risen from, right, yeah. from like the dirt to the thing. But actually this yeah. is like, this is like, you know, in the Breaking Bad sort of cycle, this is right. where, where he's become the kind of gang lord or just before the gang lord, he's got his money to pay his debts and he's doing okay kind of stuff. But he hasn't gone like full psycho. Still, it's like, it's like still that's, <laughs> that's this. That's, this, that's this, a good analogy. <laughs> so this is like where he's gone. You know, he's, he's risen up, he's risen up, he's climbed up. He's just, just one more thing. I'll help him with that. I'll help him with that. And now he's going to get tripped up by Jane Seymour is going to get tripped up by all this other stuff that's going to cause him a big problem. Um, so maybe there's a maybe there's a thing in that. Yeah, like I said, I don't think I consider uh, Cleopatra book in the same genre, but um, wherever the only tiny I, like a thread of similarity is, I think there's just a, a spin in a way. But certainly, Cleopatra is more like an actual historical fact. Yeah. Or that's it. Again, it's like I had. To, you know, I don't, I, we don't have to get into it, but yeah, Cromwell's a historical fact and all that stuff. But lost a lot less to the imagination, but just a little bit of more some opinion about things. I just remember her like commentary, but but yeah. So the book this is more similar to is, as I said, War and Peace. Stylistically, it's, yeah, not, sure. it's not similar. It's not similar because uh, that is a traditional, quite dispassionate uh, voice in War and Peace. Tolstoy's familiar style, well, familiar style, 
his style of writing. Uh, again, he then engages. He's very concerned about the kind of philosophical discussions, the uh, the kind of that book is really getting at the kind of the illusion of war as something inherently desirable, the kind of illusions of the challenges that Russia is having with its identity and the kind of clash between the front line and the kind of stately kind of uh, dining halls in St. Petersburg and all that kind of dynamic. The prevailing feature you kind of get of that is just the kind of like, this isn't all quite very joined up. <laughs> about what's going on here in like Napoleonic era in Russia, you've got half the country kind of supporting Napoleon with, oh, isn't he a great guy? I don't know. He's really strong, isn't he? <laughs> it's getting like evaded. <laughs> you've got the kind of, and again as well, of course, the really memorable scenes in War and Peace, like the battle scenes, absolute chaos, huge army, just cannibals flying everywhere. You know, you can't actually get your like line of communications to all your troops. And it's yeah. just like very visceral imagery of warfare. It kind, and yeah, there's a it, clash between I, that and the peacetime. Yeah, I feel like Tolstoy is so good at just depicting those sort of battle scenes. Like you go from one sort of group of guys to another and just like, uh, I, I wish I could remember the names of anybody <laughs> in that book. Uh, but I just recall a scene where uh, somebody's like lost his gun and he's running into the woods or something like that. But that could be a false memory too. And like it's being chased and just how it, intense it could, it could hone in and focus on like one character, but then it could expand suddenly and you could look at the entire scene of the battlefield. Yeah. The best scene is, um, is it, uh, Prince Andre? And I can't remember who it is. Uh, it's him, but he's in, He's in the battle, and I can't even remember what battle was either, and he's on the ground, and he's like dazed, and Napoleon walks by. Mm, yeah. That was one of my favorite bits, I kind of love all that. So that was all really good. And what's interesting about that is it blends the That's fiction. That's where he gets, like, abdu- not abdu- he gets abducted in a way to with yeah. Napoleon, right? Yeah, 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 that's right, yeah. But I feel like Napoleon was really friendly to him as yeah. a sort of prisoner. <laughs> yes, yes, quite quite favorable uh, encounter. <laughs> I think what's interesting about that book is that the characters, apart from obviously Napoleon and the big sort of ways, there's a, there's a blend of kind of fictional characters and real characters in that book. So not every character, like the I can't remember what they were even called, Prince Andre and all that kind of lot, the Bezikovs, uh, Rostovs and all that, the Karagin family, all this kind of stuff. I don't know how many of them were actually real and how much the characters were real. I've obviously Napoleon is kind of real <laughs> and all the kind of other bigwigs were real, but there is an element... I imagine it a lot like Dynasty Warriors where the yellow turbans may or may not have existed, <laughs> but Guan Yu maybe more likely existed. <laughs> he was definitely there. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's... Um... So there's an element of that where it was a bit of the kind of blend of the, the fiction with the historical thing. In this case, obviously, no one is fake. These people are all real in this book. So there's clearly a difference stylistically uh, with that. A bit so ago, if the kind of um, appearances can be deceiving, there's some element of the kind of court machinations, I suppose, in both. Much more about the war in War and Peace than this is, although actually most of War and Peace is actually about the peace. But, um, yeah, I can't not quite quite put together exactly where I think the similarity sort of ends or begins really um, it's a very uh, let's say it's just a very different take on the 
slightly different take. Let's say varies. It's slightly different take on the historical fiction. Both are quite committed to historical accuracy as much as they can be. I think there's a lot of research clearly that went into both, and then of course you've got Tolstoy's own experiences of actually being in in combat and on the front line that obviously yeah. influenced his view. Obviously, clearly Hilary Mantel can't be in the Tudor period. So she can't quite 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 Well she's not working that. hard enough, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Just put on like the sort of VR headset or something and like get back there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think in terms of writing style, there's absolutely no comparison. I think they're just completely opposite, yeah. not opposite, but yeah. close to opposite. Yeah, very different. Uh, maybe, I guess, the focus of the story. So I feel like uh, in Wolf Hall, there was a bit more of a vertical uh, focus in terms of like class and status. So, like, Thomas Cromwell would obviously do his stuff with the king, but then he'd go to his, like, family, which is still, I don't I mean, I'm sure they got brought up a little bit after he got in favor with the king and everything, but he saw a bit more of uh, the different classes in, in England at that time. Whereas I feel like uh, in, in War and Peace, it was really focused on, you know, generals and aristocracy and Things like that. You didn't see so much of the little man, the common, common Russian guy back in, back in the day. Unless he was on the battlefield, but they didn't really talk much about him. He just went out and <laughs> just tosses his, his body at the at the opposition. Yeah, just a bit of a pawn to be sort of chucked out there. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't mind having a quick break. Sure, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. See you after the break. Toodaloo. We're back. Welcome back. We are indeed. That we are. Uh, where should we go now? Do you want to do? We could do critical analysis. This could be. This is a yeah. An was, opinionated uh, part. Was... This opinionated part. Opinionated part. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> this is where things get dangerous. Those divisive opinions uh, come out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lock up the kids. This is the the eighteen rated but, uh, bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, we tend not to disagree on a lot, but you, know, you never know. We can find those ways. I disagree. I disagree. Dig, just dig. <laughs> I disagree. I disagree. No, actually, in fact, we always no, we always agree on everything. Hundred percent. I disagree that we agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Go on. So this is a bit free form. Then, what do you like? Uh, what is this like? Well, uh, so since I didn't give my opinion on the style because I said I wouldn't divulge my opinion, but um, I was not a fan of the style, um, mostly because I feel like I lost a lot of the beginning of the book when it finally finally uh, dawned on me that he was ninety five percent of the time uh, Thomas Cron- Cromwell and. I would, I would actually caveat that opinion by saying um, in hindsight I think it's an interesting style choice uh, obviously she's the she's the uh, <laughs> the renowned author and I am not so um, you know 
good on her for being uh, having a successful book. Uh, but uh, I, I would just say, instead of saying, like, I don't like this book because of this, I would say it did remove from my enjoyment of reading because I think I did get sort of bogged down sometimes and, like, kind of wondering, you know, like that, uh, you know, much like the example I mentioned earlier, kind of wondering, like, what happened? Do I go back a couple pages and reread, or do I just keep pushing forward? So it's uh, maybe not so much a criticism as much as it is a. Uh, it's a reason why I might say I didn't like. I didn't, didn't feel like I enjoyed the book. Uh, in that regard, in that regard, from a stylistic right. standpoint. Well. Let's let's loop back to this. So when you're talking about the stoa, you are talking about the use of the he. Are you talking about the yes. present, the third person present tense, or just the he? I don't think I got so caught up in okay. the third person present tense. I think it was mostly mostly the he, and there were also parts where like, which weren't always that confusing actually, but there were sometimes these like uh, freight like these things that were written in the book that were clearly spoken, but they weren't in quotation marks. I'm not as much of a stickler on that one, but maybe just tack that on to like the style, stylistic component. But, but yeah, there was a style overall uh, was often hard to follow, uh, but I think it, it wasn't so much that like it, I had no idea what I had just read after I finished the book, but uh, but it was like certain mm-hmm. scenes and things like that. So it got kind of like... So this is obviously the most divisive part of the book. Okay, so the use of the he, uh, we've had some chat about it. I probably don't have too much to say beyond it other than to say I can understand that it would be... Uh, certainly at least a source of ambiguity. Again, I don't necessarily think a source of ambiguity in a book is always a bad thing. There are many books I've read that I've actually enjoyed a lot, and I've often found them quite ambiguous. Well, we read... uh, We read... uh, uh, Oh, what was that really super long one? Uh, Infinite Jest. Yeah, 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 that was hella ambiguous. ambiguous (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot I didn't understand. Yeah, yeah. It's true. Yeah, yeah, I can I can appreciate yeah. that too. It's just kind of like um, something I wish I had known beforehand because I, I think if I had reread it again, I'd probably enjoy it the second time a lot more than I enjoyed it the first time. Just kind of being aware of those types of nuances. So yeah, so I I think the he again it comes with its challenges. If you once you get used to the pattern of it, it doesn't entirely solve the problem, but ninety five percent of the time you'll be okay. The third person, uh, the third person present, I, again, I said whilst it can be tiring, it can be quite exhausting because it's, it's quite, it's quite, can be a bit kind of like, you're not used to reading like that. I thought it was really good, that style choice. I thought this makes a really big difference. So there's a really, again, I'm just, I just turned to a passage here. This is the entirely beloved Cromwell bit. And you've got this section, which is like, this isn't chosen by any, particular reason but just about just a random sample here right entering the house you meet the family hanging up you see them painted life-size before you meet them in the flesh and more conscious of the double effect it makes pauses to let you survey them 
to take them in. The favourite, Meg, sits at her father's feet with a book on her knee, gathered loosely about the Lord Chancellor, his son John, his ward Anne, who is John's wife, Margaret Gates, who is also his ward, his aged father, his daughters, uh, and his wife Alice, with lowered head and wearing a cross at the edge of the picture. Master Holbein has grouped them under his gaze and fixed them forever, as long as no moth consumes, no flame or mould. Right. In real life, there is something fraying about their host, a suspicion of unravelling weave, being at his leisure, he wears a simple wool gown. And it sort of goes on. But I think what's interesting about it, there's a... Because, again, it's a third person, but the way it's written is a bit sort of like a first person. You're very, very tight yes. to... So yeah, you're you. very tight. Yeah, so in this one, yeah. yeah you so walk into the house. Choice. Yeah, this one is actually second. So there's sometimes there's the interesting choice of second choice. But a second person, sorry. So that's actually quite a poor example because I've shown a second person. But it does show the kind of... Um, she plays with the structure quite uh, uh, quite uh, remarkably. Most of it is, is in the third, but it does use the sort of second. Stylistically, I thought this was a really good thing. And her language is very good. Like, she had got, like, a very good um, choice of uh, word choice, description... I genuinely laughed quite a lot of times just for like some like sassy comments that people made that oh. brought it to life. I genuinely thought it was really funny. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're gonna we're gonna disagree on this one because she definitely had some laugh out loud moments. I love the whole just it was basically like a shtick throughout the book. It's like so here comes call me Risley and this is <laughs> or sometimes they. Okay, so I can't remember how to pronounce his full name. It's like Riz, Riz something. If you could find his full name, that'd be great. <laughs> but then, you know, I think the first name I meet him, but it's a longish name and kind of hard to pronounce just by reading it. And then he says, oh, just call me Risley. And then at some points he's referred to in the book as call me Risley. Here comes, you know, call, call me Risley, walks in the door. And then she further shortens it to just call me with like capital C, capital me. And so here comes call me walking in. And it was just like a gag that it was just went throughout the book. And sometimes she'd say call me. Sometimes she'd say Risley. Sometimes it would say call me Risley. And it's just, I don't know, this gag cracked me up the entire time. So it's, because it's such a, you have like such a, I would say like a serious book, but you have these like things that are clearly gags. If you just you think about it, that got me. Did and I think there was throughout that again with the tight third person, there were sort of gags that sort of like Cromwell would be like saying in his head as a reaction to something that was said, yeah. just genuinely, genuinely hilarious. Like most pages, there was like some just like sassy comment or like sassy thought. They just genuinely made me laugh. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those yeah, internal... Internal dialogue is hilarious. The internal yeah, response. Yeah, it's genuinely hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it was... Um, it is, again, it's a quite a serious topic thing. In a bit, again, I think, you know, again, this can be quite a tired subject. So to breathe life into it with some stylistic choices, I think is a really, uh, a really positive thing. And again, I think, um, you know, her turns of phrase... I, mean, I can't quite find one turn to hands, but I'm sure you would have seen some. Sometimes her turn of phrase, she chooses just a great choice of words in a phrase and sentence to describe the situation. It's really, uh, 
uh, impressive, I think, for its kind of like writing style. Yeah. I get, I get the he, I get the he bit, and I get why that will put people off. But I do think there's some, and, and again, yeah. I, get, I get ambiguity, but I think her fluency in writing the English language is, is quite impressive. Yeah, I'm sure there's no doubt about that. That's why, that's why I, you know, try to make sure it's, it's well, it's clear that I, that's, it's a thing I didn't enjoy as I was reading yeah. it. I don't think that's like a really literary critique, to be honest. <laughs> it's more of a personal, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Personal, I, I found it, I found thing. it jarring, but I found it a bit like, you know what? Cause I've, I've also quite like, I mean, do you like, do you like kind of postmodern or mo- I guess well I guess Infinite Justice postmodern but like modernist like you kind of Virginia Woolf James Joyce I don't know how much of that kind of stuff you've written you've read but that's I think I've only read like one story by J- uh, mm. Virginia Woolf I don't think I've read any mm. James Joyce so they always like but that was like, yeah maybe I mean, they nice always play with like form style I always kind of liked that when I was like a teenager. And I was like doing English lit, and I thought I'd do it at uni, and then like my world changed, and I chose it to be a different path. Like, I, it was actually, I, I really used to like that. This is about the book, not yeah, your was, life, Lee. I liked it. It was more edgy, you were trying to be different, and it was, it was like, ooh, you know, the get away from the kind of tired um, rules that are set. Who tells you you have to write like that, you know? And I think sometimes some people take it too far. Yeah. Like, you know, there's like one word on the page or something, like that's just. That's not very good. <laughs> or like, or like, you know, I, I think you, you said something about the punctuation or like things about um, speech. That's quite common these days. I think like, um, what's her name? Sally Rooney. Is her name Sally Rooney? The one who does like beautiful world. Where are you? That one. I think. She... Oh yeah, without the quotation yeah. marks. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't really. I actually wasn't that bothered at all, to be honest. I actually, in some strange way, found it humorous sometimes because it was almost like. I imagine this person's like in passing, kind of murmuring it over his shoulder and just saying this thing. I don't know. But no, that, that wasn't. I just, that was more of an observation, but. But it kind of goes to her, uh, her uh, unique uh, writing style for sure. I'll go in with it. I'll just add one little positive because it leads, to, leads from it. I think one of the strengths of this book is, again, Posing the challenge of how do you make this kind of world, how do you make this all really interesting given it's so old and feels a bit dated and everyone knows the story. This is like very, it's very atmospheric. I did have to say it was very atmospheric book reading this. You could smell Tude of England from this book. Like genuinely, it was it was impressive. Like I could see it, I could smell it. You could see the kind of like the kind of the... The sort of shadowy corners having a conversation at court. You could, I could have sort of, I had a picture of Austin Fryers in my head. It's kind of very Tudor house. You've got the candles going, that sort of this. You've got the rain outside of the kind of cobbled streets of the kind of Tudor England time. There was so much of this that I just felt like was, and again, this wasn't a book that had a huge amount of description. Like it wasn't like you were sitting there going through like reams of like description of like oh the grass was green and it was green like you know the pearls and stuff it was never like that but it nevertheless it still created a because again i think the tightness on the shoulder of cromwell the feelings that you get from it the lack of sort of exposition and it shows by it tells by showing 
there's a lot in this that feels like quite like a you know, extremely vivid for something that was quite old. So I think she does a lot of credit because I thought I thought it was it creates a really good vivid world. I think it's a, a thing you could say where this book is not its strength is not a plot strength quite clearly because you you probably know the plot before you go in right so it's like about a book about something you already know about so she can't really pull out like this magical plot device because you already know the plot so how does she impress you well she's got to impress you by she's got to bring you in like forget about there being like a plot and the three act structure although there is a sort of element of the kind of plot progression too but the main success of the book, I think, is its ability to kind of suck you in and be like, right, you're in Trude of England now. You've seen all these people having a conversation. You see the thoughts. You see the kind of machinations. You see the problems, the dilemmas, the impacts, all the kind of philosophical world. You see the religious element. You see the foreign policy. You see war. You see quite a lot of stuff going on on the shoulder. And I think I think that, for me, was the most impressive part uh, of the book. And a lot of that is related to style choices. Yeah, I'm not sure if I got as much as the visual component, but I think I did get everything else and uh, that might go to <laughs> my lack of knowledge on what Tudor England actually kind of looks like. I mean, not that you were there, but <laughs> you probably see more, Wasn't like that? more renderings and, and pictures and textbooks. <laughs> or maybe. <laughs> I can't judge, you know. You be you. <laughs> But yeah, definitely. Like when it came to like the way that they were making for foreign policy decisions, uh, for example, you kind of felt like you were in the room with them, sort of making these decisions, and you know, somebody saying why, and then somebody saying why not, <laughs> and the king just saying no, we're going to do this. <laughs> Although there was there was no like epic. Remind me again. Am I am I missing something? There was no like epic war. No. No, scene no, no, no. or anything no, no, inside no, no, of this no. book. No. I feel like that's something you'd be hard to miss, but I just want to make sure. No. <laughs> but they talked about it a lot. <laughs> All right. Um, other things about critical analysis beyond the style. So we did say that we did pretty. I would say we talked about some likes and dislikes, some strengths. Uh, between the two of us, um, now I feel like this is probably par- par- partially because of the reason why it took us, or no, part of the reason why I'm not sure how to say, like, if there were, you know, let's say if there were, like, parts that were slow or too fast. I actually, thinking about it now, in terms of, like, uh, not how long it took me to read, but how long the book actually flowed, if you just read it page for page, um, I don't think I could say anything negative about the pace of the book. I think it actually, after, you know, I feel like I've read a number of books where it's like, this book could have been shorter. I feel like this one is probably the right length, even though it was like 650 pages. Yeah, I thought that. I was thinking that today. I was like, our common critique is, could have been shorter. Could it? I'm just thinking, well, yeah, maybe. But again, <laughs> yeah, as I said, this is not, it's not a plot. It's not, yeah, it's not a plot book. It's not really a plot book. And so, 
where some books they get lost down the well because they they are plot books but they've got lost in certain idea for me I think for me the bits I found hardest to read were the kind of just like the court some of the court intrigue again okay that was quite a lot of the book but I think there were some bits of it where particularly where you know if you look at the cast of characters I don't know in your section of the book there's like five six pages at the beginning I don't know what version it's got I've got that one uh, it's got at the beginning it's got like a list of it's uh, the fourth edition I think it looks like this is fourth at the bottom left and it's got the kind of Tudor rose on the front it's not the one I got but if you, if you really want to know I can go grab it but otherwise yeah. well okay now nah, I'm not that desperate <laughs> okay. basically at the front at the front it's got <laughs> it's got um, it's got the main it's got all the characters uh that are in the book. And it's obviously quite confusing. I always find it confusing at the period, at this time, when you've got what people call it the Duke of Norfolk, and they can often just be called Norfolk. <laughs> I always, in history classes, I always find that very difficult as well. And I was like, that's a bit like saying, you know, you can say the president, but you need to know what time <laughs> period we're talking about. And I need to know who the president was before you can use, like, the epithet president. Do you know what I mean? You can't just say president. You can't just say prime minister without me knowing who that person was. But I always found like that was the case in history class. They would say, oh, Norfolk was really upset and now Northumberland is doing this. And I was thinking like, yeah, but who's that person? <laughs> yeah. Because presumably all the people that inhabited that post were different people and they had different views. That's why I always find that very confusing. It's interesting. I think they were just used to say as a kind of representation of that family's uh, power and interest, I guess. But it still, it was... It was it, Again, that's not her fault because that's just like what the time was. Right. But again, I found some of the because because I think it's a bit like you know if you go if you if you if you go with a friend and you're going out with their friends or you go with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whoever and you go out and you're with their friends and they've got a lot of like in chat that's about gossip about the people that they know and you're sat there and it's a bit ambiguous to you because they're like oh yeah and they're like Dave did this with Sarah and I couldn't believe when. <laughs> Jake and Rachel did that thing at Blobby Rubers or something like that. And you're like saying that and you're thinking like, what the hell is that? <laughs> Should I try to... Like, but it's too much. You, you, yeah, you can't You can't keep up with it all. You can't keep up. That was and if you interject, you get because, the awkward stare. Sorry, your speaking style, your speaking style, because stop using he, everyone. <laughs> you know, stop saying he. Like, tell me who that is. Like, it can be quite ambiguous. That's just life. And similarly... We're peeking into the kind of court life uh, of Tudor England. We don't know these people personally, and there is going to be some element of kind of court gossip which can be confusing, I guess, just because, again, in a similar way. So, again, in a way, I, I can't take, be too critical about that because that's just kind of... That's just kind of what it is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I would, my, my, another... Not criticism, but non-criticism, which basically means it's a personal problem. So there were a lot of characters who I just kind of forgot about. <laughs> Not quite yeah. as bad as a uh, hundred years of solitude, <laughs> but there were a lot of characters that I couldn't keep up. Um, anything else to talk about in terms of critical uh, analysis, positive or negative? Yeah. I have to say, you didn't read, you didn't listen, you didn't listen to the audiobook, so this is just going to mean like me soloing. But the guy doing the audiobook was great. Oh, wow. I would say that. I can't remember what his name was. Can't remember what his name was, but they got like a proper pro 
uh, guy in, and I've listened to a lot of audiobooks on um, you know, different books. I do find them quite nice to read along. And sometimes you get someone who goes in and does a bit more of a kind of, he does all the voices, he's quite dynamic. This guy was great. Whoever did the Wolf Hall audio, but we have to Google who was. was. Like, that guy did a phenomenal Was he like, in a world in Tudor England where King Henry VIII <laughs> wants to marry Anne Boleyn, but the Pope won't let him? He was he was English. He was English. Oh. <laughs> and he was going to America. It's like, on the soccer pitch. <laughs> Touchdown. <laughs> Touchdown, Henry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. <laughs> he had a very smooth voice, of course. Oh. Um, uh, uh, he does, he, and he, but he's a bit smooth, but he's a bit, he had that kind of sarky, uh, he had a snarly voice. Quite snarly. Because it was like a bit, again, it was sort of like... Sometimes. You know, no, no, it was like a size. It was like that. It was, it was more kind of like, like through gritted teeth. Sometimes a bit like snake style, uh, but like not quite uh, like that. Okay. So it's a bit kind of like your sneery would be probably the word. And it was he was he was really good. Uh, brought it all to life. It was fantastic. And again, when he was reading the kind of like little side jokes and stuff like that, they were genuinely hilarious. And his like sneery style was great. Mm. So well recommended anyone who reads this book to do the audio book alongside because it's fantastic. Yeah, maybe that's why your the picture in your head got painted much more vividly than, than mine. Mm. Possibly so, but I mean I'm, I'm used to reading the audio books now. I mean I, I listen to the audio books alongside the reading, and I don't know it's something. How much do you have you ever done the audio books with any any books it's that you've read? Been a long time. I feel like I'm just part of me likes that physical thing in my hand. But uh, I don't know. You can do both. I, can't do both. I mean, I, I think I, what I've done is a bit of like a. I've done somewhere. This is my like real dodgy version of an audiobook. But on the iPhone, you can get like a half decent text to speech, even inbuilt in Siri. And if it's in your Kindle app, you can get it to kind of read it along. Oh, yeah. Of course, I wouldn't do a great job on this because you. Uh, what I'm saying is there's an actual voice actor. Um, but yeah. Uh, just I think sometimes it helps. I think for books that were, I find it, it really good for books that are quite difficult to read. Because I wouldn't say for like for as much as I thought the style was really good. I thought this book was a. I don't think this was an easy read. It was. It was. A, I thought it was quite challenging at times. She doesn't baby you as a reader, and the both the tone, the he, the everything like that. You have to pay attention, otherwise you can go missing. Mm-hmm. You know, you can like drift off a bit and you're like, well, fuck, what happened there? And you actually miss, you can, sometimes you might miss nothing of great consequence. Other times you can be like, oh, by the way, you missed something quite major there. Sorry to tell like, Sometimes, like, again, a major plot point can happen in like one can sentence. You highlight that can be the important books. parts in yellow for yeah, me. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but as far as critical analysis, I'm sure we can probably, there's probably a lot more to be said, but, uh, I think I've said mine. All right, I, I think I think that's about it for me on on the critical analysis. Well, I think I think there's some. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's probably good, pretty good faithful. I mean, I think so. This book is is very well regarded. I mean, it's um, it won if you if you if you did a bit of a of a read, it won 
the Man Booker Prize twice. The Man Booker Prize is basically the best English language book that's published in the UK and Ireland. Yeah, I heard. You also might have seen. Guardian, or the, yeah, the Guardian's best book of the 21st century as well. It's quite an impressive accolade. There's different discussion online, and it tends to be quite divided depending on your view on the writing style. But it certainly is a. Uh, 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 certainly a quite well-read book, regardless of your own uh, views on it. Mm. I also think this just historical fiction, a really interesting genre that I, I didn't quite know that I never gave much mind to it, I guess. Yeah, I think I'm a bit more but I can see genre now, because I... Uh, I know War and Peace was... War and Peace might have been the only other... Well, I can't say it's the only other, but the only other that I can remember because maybe I read a historical fiction in high school or college that I can't recall at the moment, but I don't ever remember it being like a a genre that I would go to. Typically, I would want to, if I'm curious about something in history, I would find a history book. But just, uh, mm-hmm. historical fiction, that's a, that's a genre I don't think I'd put too much thought towards. Mm-hmm. It's something we've talked about a bit before. There's the bit of the thing where we've drifted between different books. I remember we've done books like Poland, for example. We've done some non-fiction books. I think I remember you saying, this might be misrepresenting what you said, so sort of shoot me down. Okay. I'm locked in. Sorry, this is paraphrased. I don't think exactly what you said. I think I like inferred it from something and I paraphrased it. A bit like a kind of like, you know if you want to know something, you could Wikipedia it or something like that. I can't think you've said it quite like that. But it was something that was sort of struck me from, you know, when reading Poland, and it could feel a bit like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. I didn't think it was a bad book, by the way, and I did think it was interesting. Yeah, It could read a bit like a bit of a Wikipedia entry to some extent, and you could feel like, well, what's the benefit of nonfiction if it's just like a Wikipedia entry? One thing I find with history is that, again, I'm someone who really likes history, but it can be, it can be quite a flat subject, depending on who's doing it, what it's about, and everything like that. The challenge of the historian is often to be okay. They have to be. You trust that they're on top of the okay. Hilary Mantel is not professed to be a historian, but she did a lot of historical research for this book, sure. so no doubt on that. But the broader point is, you're a historian. It, you sort of take for granted that you've done the kind of the big legwork on judging the historical accuracy and you've compiled all this stuff. The big thing is to try to make people care about this era, this genre, you know, particularly as you go back in history when it becomes a, a, a long time uh, before. But I found what's interesting is the idea of kind of, you know, I, I've been sort of, I like to read things and learn stuff about things and I can't always vividly kind of picture it. There's this idea that, you know, some people remember facts and dates and figures and some people remember just the feeling of it, but it's very hard to express in detail about what happened. And I often feel this about myself, you know, when people like, if I recall events and stuff, I don't really, I'm very bad at recalling like exactly who was there, what was said exactly, the exact details. Mm -hmm. But I'm very good at like I can I can very usually remember quite well a feeling, even that it's very hard to put into words because the feeling is very complex. So there's not a word that describes that feeling, and it's you'd have to sort of roundabout get there, and you might get seventy, eighty percent of the way to describing that feeling. <laughs> so fiction as a route to get to history 
is a really interesting idea and to be like, you know what, we can take you there. Because the yeah. merits of fiction is that you can say to someone like, you know what, we can transport you. Because some people think fiction's pointless. I don't think fiction's pointless, even if it's not historical. It doesn't have to be historical because yeah, fiction tells that. you about, it can show you about, yeah, it's quite hot. Yeah, not hard, with you, I, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's a poor take. To, I think, so. Some people say like, oh, you, if, you, if you're not learning that you're not earning or something like that. You know, there's still like stuff like, like crappy stuff like that. Right? But actually, it enhances your creativity. It gives you a sense of the world. It gives you a sense of empathy. And it's a, a, a way of opening up the world's experience to things that you could never experience Yeah. in a way that's very uh, different to... And I think in a way that will hold up quite well because you've got like chat GPT and stuff like that that can basically go, tell me about Poland. So you can tell the stat. You can someone just rattle off the detail. Tell me about you know the the you know the elements in the um, you know in, in whatever right. You can tell tell me the elements in water and like the make, the chemical makeup of water and everything like that. That's that's sort of just chat GPTable <laughs> to some extent. You can't really chat GPT War and Peace. It can give you a summary of the book, but. <laughs> There's something different about that and actually having read it and being, get the feeling of what it was like with it. Yeah, for sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I guess one, and I'm not really necessarily uh, posing this, this critique, but I could imagine one could say, well, if you're you know getting your history from historical fiction, are you learning history? <laughs> now, I think that in many ways you can say yes, but if you're going to be a historian or something like that, or if you want to give an accurate account of what happened and when or whatever, I'm not sure if you could say like, this is a reliable source of, of historical information, but that's kind of like more in the extreme. If you're, cause I don't think you're saying like, Oh, we should only get our history from historical fiction, <laughs> but, but I could see, you know, that, being like a passing argument maybe if you want to be like oh if you want to have your argument be like oh you can learn from historical fiction and you can also learn from you know poland the book and uh which one would you prefer to learn from well it kind of depends if you want sort of the fun story or if you just want the like the concrete facts or something like that but i don't know it's just things, thoughts that come to mind, but not necessarily my endorsed opinion. But mm. yeah, there's clearly a place for for both of them. Of course, I, do, I just think that, it's a that's bit why like the a, diverse world is beautiful because we don't have to pick and choose; we can have all of it. Right, right. It's just an interesting little avenue with which to explore old ideas, and you can imagine, for example quite a a realm of possibilities where you could say for example you take historians in a major subject who might not themselves be really the best writers of all time but you can imagine them do a collab with a really good like ghost writer or like a, a not even a ghost writer but like a writer who is a very fluid writer of the english language that doesn't have that detail if you did a collab project you could bring to life both the historical elements of of all that stuff in a way that could be 
accessible and tell the story in a way. Do you know what I mean? And actually, because I'm sure that's what actually historians want to do. They want to say, like, look, this is really relevant. This is really interesting stuff. And you should all care about this because of YYZ reasons. I think it's just an interesting thought. Just an interesting spot. Could you get historians and writers writing fictions together? Yeah, I think the closest uh, we have to that is, like, the journalistic, I guess, history. Um, Mm. So, like, the, you know, way back in uh, the China days when we read uh, Black Flags, I really enjoyed that book a lot because I felt like there was a narrative, but it was also telling me, like, facts and things like that. Um, I think the book Afghanistan, or was it the Afghanistan papers that we read more recently than Black Flags, but I like that style a lot when it comes to history. But I also like my, you know, my, my kind of more textbook-esque type histories too. But, you know, even like, I wouldn't describe uh, Poland as like pure textbook, but it, there was a bit more of a flow to it, so. Mm. Textbooks are probably the most boring <laughs> books that I don't think we would ever select for the book club. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that's really interesting about the about history and about, again, I mentioned ChatGPT AI. You can't go a podcast without mentioning AI. Oh yeah, this is the AI is... section of Wolf Hall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the AI section. <laughs> the AI section here is you can get, large, you know, large language models, uh, and you can interact with them in a way that can get them to simulate the voice of, or the thoughts, opinions, or voice of someone important in history, or some moments in history, or even the population at a period of time. There's something really quite fascinating about the idea about going like. Okay, ChatGPT, you're going to be Winston Churchill during the Blitz. Write to me your thoughts and feelings about what's going on, your worries, and what you're going to say to the public or something like that. It'd be fascinating. You know, do you know what I mean? Like, so you could bring to life a lot of these, because you can't be there now. And even with people now, you couldn't be alive. But do you know what I mean? Even like you can go back to periods of history and sort of unpack it a bit and yeah. got to interrogate them with your voice I mean the, the, sort of in theory that the kind of idea is really quite interesting right in theory for sure I, I doubt you'd get like the deep thoughts of uh, Winston Churchill at this point but it, maybe <laughs> but he's written a lot of words so what, what's happened but helpful for him is that he's got absolute tomes of writing that would definitely you, help. You can be pretty sure. You can get pretty sure. He's got thousands of pages. This guy wrote a lot. And he's got his speeches. He's got his all everything he ever said in Parliament. It will all be on the record. And then, so he's got a lot of text. So you know his tone of voice extremely well. You know his opinions about a lot of stuff. And therefore it's not inconceivable that someone like him that you can get yeah, large language models. With, with somebody with that large of a corpus, well. yeah, with somebody with that large of a corpus, I could I could see that as long as he's has a corpus of like sort of honest thought, because obviously political speech, mm-hmm. yeah, you can be a little dodgy with the truth or whatever. But if he has like diaries too, and then obviously if he's yeah. an opinionated person, 
oftentimes his spoken opinion might be as probably is his true opinion. So there's like a multitude of sort of layers to it. Yeah, just interesting. I mean, if you do like large language model, chat GPT, Thomas Cromwell. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, <laughs> that's true. I guess he's got. Does he I also have... he's got a heart? Yeah. If he has preserved, I don't think preserved the. He's got. He's got a. Yeah, he'd have some writing, but it's nowhere near. Yeah. Nowhere near. The only much. problem is like a lot of You also have to digitize it too. You can't just like take his yeah, whatever yeah. handwriting he did back then. Just... Yeah, 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 yeah. It's scruffy writing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be tough. Um, just another way of reimagining history, and I think that's where historical fictions can, you know, see their see their lens. And I just think it's. A, embracing new ways of doing it again this book's not that new I guess it's still like late 2000s but just still it's like an interesting way of doing old topics so I'm always I'm always a fan of that um anything else you want to talk about or are you ready to wrap up and do scores I think as far as uh, since we're recording typically we could go like eight hours doing this but since we're recording maybe three <laughs> hours is, uh, is, <laughs> is enough so <laughs> We can always revisit, as we just revisited a bunch of other books that we referenced to, we do often revisit uh, books for certain reasons. All right. So, typically, we uh, score and review books on this channel. It's a kind of a good way of capturing some discussions that we've had. Uh, I think you should also mention, on like, future. how do we select books? Uh... Do you think there's a great design behind the selection of books? Oh, no, no, no. I, I was referring to the most service level. It's like, oh, you pick yeah, a yeah, one, so awesome, and then right? I yeah, pick yeah. one. So alter, yeah, so we alternate. But as far, as, like, the choices as, far as like the deep, deep, complicated <laughs> algorithms that go into our choice selection, no, we cannot reveal those. No, and I was, I was thinking, oh, yeah, that's, that's trade secret. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, I would never do that. <laughs> It's a trade secret. So we've alternated this. So we've run this for quite a few times. We've only recently started to try to uh, record them. We think that would just be a good thing to revisit. And we hope that other people might enjoy the discussions too. We've discussed a lot of books over, the, I guess, the last uh, couple of years. And they've ranged really from an awful lot. But we rate them from, uh I guess, do we rate them from one or zero? I don't know which one we do. I don't think we've ever used either of those scores either way. I kind of mentally think it's a zero, but a lot of people think it's t uh, one, but I guess that's always kind of been a bit by the by. Wait, isn't Have it... you always thought it's a one or a zero? I've always thought one to ten. Okay, so one is like a, the minimum. Right. So you get a point for just being there. Could you? Is it possible <laughs> to have a zero? I feel like you could only be zero if you didn't read the book. Just like didn't turn up. Yeah, there was like there wasn't any text. Yeah, that was like. <laughs> All right. So yeah, one. one. Okay, <laughs> I could. I could. I could imagine a hypothetical book. I would give a, a zero. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it'd be yeah, kind of hard I could to imagine. Find. I, yeah, we've had we've had some we've had some calamities super, over the time. Super postmodern, just the on the front page. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So to give you a flavour, what have we given the low scores for in time? Surprisingly, and this will be very controversial depending on what uh, world you're from, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude got 2 and a 1.5. I think that was the lowest that we had. And that's an absolute classic of uh, South American literature. So it's sorry. Can't always um, jump on the bandwagon. Quite, 
No, it didn't quite didn't quite land. We talked about the Mao case earlier, three and a four. Um, Nathan gave that a four. I think he only felt bad because he actually chose that. <laughs> the sound of the mountain, uh, four and a three, flip sides again. Those were the kind of dud choices. I remember oh, specifically choices. describing that one as very boring. Yeah, the sound of the mountain. That's, that's. I think yeah, I think that's a good description of that. <laughs> and then on the flip side, we've had. A couple of close to 10s or 10s. I gave 10 to Crime and Punishment. Nathan gave 10 to 1Q84 by Haruki Murakami. We've had 9.5s in East of Eden, John Steinbeck for both of us. So it's possible we're not that stingy. Um, you can get it, but you've got to be better than the Mao case. <laughs> if you want more than a, <laughs> what, a three or a two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then get an editor of it. You can get these four. If you want more than just uh, uh, pity points. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that brings us here. So what do we give to Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall? See, the problem is oftentimes... Uh, so when we wrote, rated our first book, it was probably a lot easier to just kind of pick a, some number out of 10. But over time, it becomes more and more difficult because then you start to think, well... In terms of, you know, is this a fiction book? Is this a nonfiction? In this case, it's a it's a fiction, although a historical fiction. Um, among the fictional books that I've written, is it within a certain range? Among because I, you know, I personally feel like a fiction book is, or a nonfiction book rather, is very rarely, in my opinion, ever going to reach ten level. But then I start to think, well, what if it's a really good for a nonfiction book. Okay, well, maybe the scaling has to be a bit different, but all this is completely subjective and in my brain, so so I'm not so sure. But uh, I think uh, I might have given it a lower score before speaking with you, Lee, but I think Sometimes when we discuss these things, it can have a either positive or negative uh, sway. So I think I will give it a six. Bam. Which I think I might have said a lot of people, but... <laughs> <laughs> and I also want to say, I'm not saying that it deserves a six. I'm saying... In terms of my enjoyment, if I read it again, I might give it something different. But this is kind of the, the number I have in my head in terms of how much I enjoyed it. And there was a lot to enjoy, no doubt. Well, that will be controversial. Um, I, I would probably give this... I would give Wait, it... Wait, hold on. Before you do that, and this is oh. again goes to the difficulty of doing this so I gave Blindness by Jose Saramago a 5.5 I don't think I can then give Wolf Hall a 6 so it's gotta be at least a 7 alright give a little bit more space between those two that's yeah it's hard to keep these things all to perspective sometimes yeah I mean that book was actually okay but it was it, there was some. It was um, okay. I, I think it was. 
it could have been way better. I was yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that was I was quite hyped when I read the yeah bio. About I think it, it had really high expectations for it. And then you know, still okay, but I feel like the disappointment ultimately gave it a five point five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bit could have done, but, uh, could've done better. Uh, I I think this was really good. It wasn't an easy read, necessarily, but um, I think you know. Otherwise, I just give sort of trash fiction ten. So I think I, I wouldn't just say on my personal view just about how easy it was for me to read. There are books that have been page turners, but I wouldn't. I would like forgot them. I suppose even the books that we've read that even some of them we've forgot some of the details. Again, I said I'm not somebody who like necessarily remembers all the details of things, but can remember the general feeling that you get from certain things and puts you in certain situations. I think this book did that uh, really well. The writing style was phenomenal. I think she's an extremely talented writer. Does not like. Uh, any other writer I've seen uh, for better or for worse I wasn't mad about he but I'll get over it I think if you can wield the English language that well I think uh, I think you deserve some kudos I think you deserve some kudos for bringing life to an old period uh, and making it genuinely very engaging so I would give this I'm going to give this a I think I'd give this an 8.5. Oh, wow. I think give this an 8.5. I thought it was a really good, uh, well-written piece. Not perfect, but, I mean, perfection is a difficult bar to reach. Yes. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't really say that. But I think this is genuinely really enjoyable. Um, no qualms about it. Would I, read the, would I read the follow-ups? Would you read the follow-ups? Eventually, yes, I think I would. Not mm. tomorrow. Mm. Not next week. Not next month, but eventually, I think I would. Yeah, I would read it. I think bringing up the bodies is the next one, isn't it? Bring up the bodies, sorry. I would read it. Um. Yeah, not much to say. I think it's also this. This again, this genre can be again the fantasy. It's not fantasy, is it? But you can get these kind of things where you see these front covers and you think, oh, it's a bit fantasy. Or it could be a bit kind of like. Oh, it's going to be a bit trashy to some respects, but I, I would not say that. Never judge book. a book by its uh, cover. No, <laughs> no. I wouldn't judge it because I, I, I picked this book because it was quite well regarded by certain circles. So I thought, okay, this would be an interesting one to go for. And it'll be modern and so different sort of take on things. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I'm pleased. I, I was pleased by that book. I thought it was really good. Uh, interesting take. Mm-hmm.